As we come now uh, to the scripture, uh, let me ask you please to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, uh, we bow before you. And even as we bow before you, we come to take up your word. We don't do that, God, lightly. We do it with a great solemnity and a great joy. We know the seriousness of the matters at hand. And yet we know that because the matters at hand are held by you, that as we trust you, uh, we can know fullness of joy. And so, Father, I pray now that you would work all of that in us as we consider this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, <clears throat> to First Peter and chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. I want to begin reading as I did last week, the middle of verse 5, and read through verse 11. First Peter and chapter 5, please. Uh, this is the word of God. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now I want today just to take up this, this portion, verses 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, and knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout, throughout the world. Now, remember, Paul's writing to a group of people who are like us and unlike us. Like us in the sense that he calls them exiles. Now, they're not really exiles as we understand exiles from a particular country, a particular uh, nation on the face of the earth. But exiles in the sense that as believers in Jesus, they realize that they belong to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And thus they realize that there's a certain sense in which they do not fit in the world as it is. And so in that sense, exiles, we resonate with that. We understand that too. And then he says they're going through various trials. And we understand that because we go through various trials as well. All kinds of trials in the course of life, in the context of relationships and work. And, and, and you can list them, whether they're physical or spiritual difficulties, whatever they are. You, you can list them, the various trials that are in, in life. But, but then the place they're not really like us is the fact that they're actually, at the moment this is being written and they're receiving it, and in the days ahead, they're actually being physically, economically, socially persecuted for their faith. Now, we experience measures of persecution. I understand that. And there are some people in the world today who would pick this up and know exactly the state of the people to whom Peter's writing. But, but for us, probably not so much. But it still applies because still he's writing and he's saying, here's how to live in the world in which we live and here's how to, to maintain faith in the midst of this, how to persevere. And remember, we define perseverance as not simply hanging on, but maintaining faith with joy. That sense of perseverance. And he writes to them about the devil. Now you think he might have a couple of other subjects that he might encourage them with more. But, but no, he, he wants to be really honest with them. And he wants to let them know what's really, really happening. And so he writes to them about the devil. He prowls around, he says, like a roaring lion seeking whom he'll devour. And he says, because of that, you need to be 
sober-minded and you need to be watchful. This is serious business. We don't play around with this. They would know this. We'd see Satan very much, his hand in the persecution and all of that. And they would understand by images of their own persecution and the persecution to come what it meant that a roaring lion would seek to devour you. Christians knew about roaring lions devouring. And he's comparing the evil one to that. They'd get it. They would understand, you see. So he says, I want to be honest with you. I want you to tell you what's really happening. He doesn't mince words. He says, this is the worst of it. But I'm also going to tell you the best of it as well. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you in your sobriety of, of not being intoxicated with the things of the world. And I'm going to tell you in your watchfulness of looking out for this evil one. I'm going to tell you how to resist him. And so that's, that's where he's, he's headed. Now, it's difficult always for anyone. I know there's books about this. But really, it's difficult for anyone to speak about the devil. Because he's a fallen angel. And we know very little about angels, really, and how all that works. The Bible presents it to us. But the Bible doesn't explain all of it to us. So I know there's books about angels. And you may have your favorites. But, but really, if you study the scripture, you'll find there's very little about angels in the Bible. And we're not supposed to be focused on them anyway. Uh, they work for the Lord. And then it's a blessing and all of that. And however that happens, fine. I don't care what the messenger is. But, uh, but, but, but Satan, we know more about this fallen angel we know more about him because because of the interaction because of what happens because of him now we don't exactly know how this angel became the devil and now there are some passages in the old testament one in isaiah and one in ezekiel that we often attribute as the origin of satan the difficulty is they're, they're not about satan really they're about kings but they're so evil And they're so self-exalting and they're so prideful. We say, wait a minute, this reminds me of someone. This reminds me of someone. And and so this sense of, oh yes, this is speaking to us about this evil one, this fallen one, this fallen angel, this Satan, the devil. And of course we see him early on as the scripture unfolds. We see him in Genesis in chapter 3 third chapter of the Bible, and we see him there, and you know his presence. He's come, really, to not only distort the word of God, but destroy the image of God in his creation. That's what he's after. And so he comes at the crown of God's creation, human beings, Adam and Eve. And he comes twisting the word of God. God didn't really say, you'll die, did he? And he comes then with really the expression of his own heart. You get a deep insight into this tempter, into this accuser on that time in the Garden of Eden. Because the real temptation that he gives to Eve is, you can be like God. And you get a sense, wait a minute, that's what he wants. That's what's in him. He wants the glory. He wants to turn the tables. He wants to be God. So it's the story of God first, and so he comes in, in the garden, and 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 you know the response of Eve and, and Adam in the midst of that. And then we see him as we're reading through the scripture. We see him in the book of Job, of course, and you, you know the situation there. You know that there's a, uh, a scene in the, in the courts of heaven, and Satan's there to accuse, if you will. And, and God says, have you noticed my servant Job? Now I have this thing with the Lord, I have this prayer, and I say, God, if ever you see Satan, don't mention me. <laughs> I'd be just as happy if you leave me out of this. Uh, I could give you some names, you know? Uh, so he says, have you seen my servant Job? And, and, and the accuser accuses, and he says, well, he only loves you. He's only faithful to you because you bless him so much. Remove the blessing, and he'll curse you. And so the Lord says, well, all right. You can have Adam, but you can't have it as body. And you see the power of this evil one. Because you see, he marshals nature. He marshals other people to destroy that which Job owned and his family. And then, you know, the second go around, the Lord says, well, just don't take his life. And you can see what he did. And you see that kind of power. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. This is real. And, and, And so... 
You know that through his suffering, Job's suffering, and the revelation of God, the evil one was defeated. He didn't curse God. But then we come to the New Testament, and, and we see this evil one, most especially in the context of the ministry and the life of Jesus. I mean, who else would have been responsible for the bloodbath that happened after Jesus' birth? I mean, think about that, the evil that was behind King Herod when he found out that this one had been born who was named the king of the Jews, and he saw the competitor. And so what did he do? His response was to kill all the little boys two years old and under in a particular area. What could be more evil and prideful? And then, of course, we see the evil one come directly at Jesus. And there's a, I say fascinating, but helpful juxtaposition of two events in the life of Jesus. The first is his baptism, and the second is being tempted by the devil. And the reason is, I think, it's instructive to see for our own lives. You remember at the baptism of Jesus, he, he He identifies with human beings by going through this baptism for repentance. He didn't need to repent, obviously. He didn't need to be cleansed, obviously. But he did it to identify with us. And then when he did that, there was a voice from heaven, which was the Father. And he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so he was affirmed by his Father. And his Father says, I love you. Then the Holy Spirit came like a dove and came upon him and empowered him. And so here's Jesus, affirmed by the Father, I love you, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And where does the Spirit of God take him? To be tempted by the devil. Have you ever felt that way? You're going, oh, this shouldn't be happening to me. Why not? Well, because you're loved by God, aren't you? You're empowered by the Spirit. Well, face it. Get right in it. Jesus got right in it. And there he was. Now, when we, when we see this temptation of Jesus by Satan, there's an echo coming from Genesis chapter 3. Because you see, the first Adam was tempted, and the word of God was twisted, and he didn't trust the word of God. He trusted in himself. And you know the havoc from there. Well, now the second Adam, Jesus, is being tempted by the devil. And again, the devil comes with scripture. But this time, Jesus doesn't fall for it. This time, Jesus isn't puffed up by it like Eve and Adam were. This time, Jesus hangs on to the true word of God and speaks it rightly to Satan. I mean, it's as if Satan's coming to to, to Jesus with sort of the same temptation that he gave Adam and Eve. But as he says to Jesus, you're the son of God. You shouldn't be hungry. You can make this bread, these stones into bread. Just do it. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You don't know why I'm here. You don't know who I am, really. You don't know what this is all about. Uh, man doesn't live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, I don't listen to you. I don't take any orders from you. I'm not influenced by you. And they says, well, if you're the son of God, jump from the top of the temple. The angels will catch you. <sighs> I don't listen to you. I listen to the word of God. Hey, here's the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to die to get them. I'll just give them to you. Oh, you don't understand. I don't listen to you. I listen to my father. I trust him. Here's the word of God. And so you see, where Adam fell, Jesus didn't. And then the spirit, the, 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 this demon, this Satan, this devil leaves him. But then we see in people evidence of this devil in the demons that possess them. Now, what's fascinating is that demon-possessed people always knew who Jesus was, right? Son of God, here you are. Now, his disciples often had no clue, right? They, they, Jesus was an enigma to them, a puzzle to them, a mystery to them. Who are you really? But demon-possessed people always knew why. Well, because as the veil is taken back, we see that this is deeper than we could ever imagine. There's this cosmic battle going on. And this cosmic battle between God and Satan, really. But we must realize this, that it isn't a fair fight, if you will. There aren't two gods. Satan isn't God. He's a created being. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. 
He's not omniscient. None of that. He depends upon God for his existence, really. We're not dualists, two gods fighting it out. Oh, I wonder who's going to win. There's one God. So Satan ultimately is under the authority of God, really. We saw that in the life of Job. God limited what Satan could do. He says, oh, you can have Adam, but only this. You can have Adam, but only this far. And so you see, Satan isn't sovereign. He isn't omnipotent, omniscient, and all of that. He isn't God. He's a fallen angel. He's a powerful one. But still that power is given by God. And he will ultimately, grab a hold of this, he will ultimately serve the purposes of God in our lives. What Satan means for evil, God means for good. And so, so, so these demons, and, and, and they were there, the demons, were in these people to do exactly what Satan wanted to do, exactly what sin does, and that is to destroy in us the image of God. I mean, read about these people possessed. Are they human? What's going on? Why are they behaving that way? Why are they saying that? You can't find the image of God in these people. And, and, and so that's what sin does, you see. It comes to destroy the image of God. It comes to destroy and take away the glory from God in his creation and from his, his people. Jesus would tell parables and he would say, you know, the kingdom of God is like a vineyard, but, but the evil one comes in and spreads weeds in the vineyard to try to hinder its growth, you see. The kingdom of God is, is like a farmer who's got to sow his seed and, and he sows his seed and sometimes the seed falls on this, this pathway and, and, and the birds come and eat it up. Well, Satan's like that. He comes and, 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 and tries to snatch away the word of God before it's, 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 it's able to take root, you see, because that's what he does. That's his intention, to hinder the growth of the word of, 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 of the kingdom of God, to destroy, if you will, the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Peter himself would know very personally about this evil one. Remember there was a day in the life of Jesus when Jesus asked his disciples, he said, who do people say that I am? And they gave him a list. And then finally Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, Simon, uh, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. In other words, the father came and revealed that. Now you see it, now you know. And then Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom, <clears throat> excuse me, to Peter and the church ultimately in that sense. So a great moment in Peter's life. And then Jesus said, okay, now let me explain to you how this is all going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed and I'll, I'll be raised on the third day. And Peter said, no, you're not. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You see, at that moment, Jesus heard not the voice of Peter, but Jesus heard the voice of the evil one, the one who's come to destroy the kingdom, the one who's come to take away the glory of God, the one who's come to defeat the people of God. And, and so that's what Jesus hears. And I don't know what Peter thought at that moment in time. But I've got cold chills right now, even thinking about it. And then it was the night that Jesus was betrayed. You remember, the crucifixion would be the next day. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says to Peter, Satan has demanded you. He wants to sift you like wheat. And if I'm Peter, I know the reality of this evil one. He'd already influenced me. He already said something that, that Jesus attributed to him. And now he wants me. He's strong and he's powerful. And then Jesus said, but don't worry, I've prayed for you. Oh, you'll fall, but I'll, re I'll restore you. And we know the falling and the restoration of Peter and all of that. And then on that same night, these words, Satan entered Judas. And then we see it, don't we? All of a sudden, Exodus 3 comes back. We, we hear that prophetic word that one will come from the seed of the woman. His heel will be bruised, but he'll crush the head of the evil, of the serpent. And so we see the beginning of that. We, we see Judas, Satan enters Judas. Enters Judas. What, what's he want to do? He wants to destroy Jesus. 
Now, the best he can do, we know from Genesis 3, is bruise his heel. But it was a bruising, wasn't it? We see the battle there. Of course, on the cross, Jesus outwitted, defeated, if you will, Satan. I mean, he played right into his hands. Satan thinks, if I kill him, we're done with this. And uh, no, God had uh, preordained, if you will, uh, that this would happen through evil men. And when it did, he would put upon Jesus the sins of sinners. You see, Jesus could never have died. Jesus could never have died until his father put upon him the sins of sinners. The wages of sin is death. Jesus was sinless. Well, there's no way he could die. Remember, that was Martin Luther's issue. You remember, Luther was, was, was thinking about Jesus and the words from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he couldn't get it. He kept thinking, why did God forsake his son? Because his son was sinless. And then he read on in the scripture and meditated on the scripture. And he realized, oh, I get it now. He wasn't dying for his own sins. He was dying for mine. And so you see, at that moment, it wasn't Jesus' sin that killed him. It was ours. And he died. And when he did, of course, he was victorious over the evil one. And in the midst of all that, you see, there is a triumphing, as the apostle puts it, uh, over sin and death. Now, I would have hoped that was the end of the story, actually. <laughs> I would have hoped that would have been it. You know, it's done. Boom. Let's get on with the, the kingdom of God and the new heavens and the new earth and all of that. But, but, but John writes in the Revelation that after all that took place, Revelation chapter 12, that after all that took place, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the evil one is hurled down. And when he's hurled down, what happens is he's furious. He's furious. And so what he does is he comes after, the scripture says, all those who obey the commandments of God and cling to the testimony of Jesus. Uh, that's us, right? That's the church. That's believers. That's the ones whom he came to save, as the old hymn says. That's us, you see. And so there's this furiousness. Thus, Peter writes, he's a roaring lion. You've seen lions in the Colosseum. You know what that is. He's like that. He wants to devour us like that. And so we see this spiritual battle. Paul right, puts it like this. I, I read this earlier out of Ephesians in chapter 6. Paul says, <clears throat> excuse me. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, that word schemes, um, in Greek it comes, uh, we, we translate it literally as methods, really. But since it's attributed to the devil, these are schemes, the wiles of the devil, as some old translations have it. And so we need to be wise, he says, to the, to the methods. We need to, to be able to stand. Because, he says, so we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says there's a spiritual reality that's evil, and that's what we wrestle against. And he uses the word wrestle because he means hand-to-hand combat. This is personal. This isn't drones. This isn't air missiles, you see, that you can do from an office somewhere. This is... is, uh, this is right up close and personal. So this is a struggle, some other translations have it. This is a wrestling, you see. We get that. We understand that. And he goes, this is, this is against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Be wise to this, he says. You can't see this, so I've got to tell you about it. And you need to know that there's spiritual forces of evil against God, against the kingdom of God, against his church, against God's people. And it's headed by this one we call, who is indeed, the devil. And so you need to be wise to that and understand that. Now, of course, in our intellectual, sophisticated, white Western world, we have dismissed the devil utterly. You go to other parts of the world and they haven't. They see it, they get it. But we're too sophisticated for that. We're too intellectual for that. 
But really, isn't that just being naive to think? I mean, really. There's God, spiritual good. How far-fetched is it to think there's a spiritual evil? Not only that, as we come to the scripture, don't you know that as we read of Jesus and we read of the salvation that he brings, we realize that we'd be sunk without it. I mean, I think of my own life and I think of my own sin and it's just real. I mean, God calls us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And I know where I've failed to honor him, to love him. He calls me to love my neighbor as myself. I've failed at times to love my own children. And so where am I when I face this holy God? Well, the good news of the gospel, you know what the good news of the gospel is, that Jesus came and lived perfectly for me, for us, for believers, if you will, and he took the penalty of our sin upon himself so that we have the righteousness of Jesus and we have the forgiveness that comes through him so that we can be received in the presence of God. That being true, why wouldn't I trust everything in this book? And so when he says there's a devil that I can't see, but who's operative in the spiritual places, why wouldn't I believe in it? And let's face it. Have human beings ever been able to come close to eradicating evil? You know, we think, well, if we're better educated, maybe we can teach people better and they'll behave better and they won't be evil. And then we know that there is evil amongst the most highly educated. In fact, I think you can go back to Nazi Germany and in the midst of that Holocaust uh, culture and environment and realize that they were an advanced people intellectually. And yet evil was pervasive in the midst of them. And I don't think any of us would say that there isn't evil in the systems of our own country. And so why is it that even amongst the most intellectual, if it just takes education and retraining and all of that, that we haven't gotten rid of evil by this point in time? But there's something deeper, isn't there? Well, we give people more opportunity, and I'm all for that. We, give, we help people with a leg up socially and economically and, and otherwise, and all that's wonderful, but it hasn't eradicated evil. Just because they live better doesn't mean they're going to be more moral. And we see the evil in the whole world, and how else can we account for the atrocities that we see? Now, Paul says we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against these spiritual forces. But he would also not exclude flesh and blood. Paul knew that these spiritual forces work through flesh and blood. And and we have enough sin in us that even if Satan weren't around, we'd still get enough trouble. And so so, so, so he says, oh, yeah, it, it manifests in flesh and blood. Paul would know that. He was part of the flesh and blood that persecuted believers. He was his... He was persecuted himself by flesh and blood. The people in Peter's, they would know, oh, flesh and blood's a problem too. But he's saying, I don't want you to be naive. I don't want you to be unsophisticated. I don't want you to be unintellectual. I want you to think about this. There's a real force of evil. And you better put that in your whole equation in your life or you'll be taken down. Because he's seeking to devour. So you need to know these things. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. So we need to, Peter says, resist him. Well, how do we do that? Well, the question is, what does he do? How does he really work? And again, it's difficult to know exactly how the evil one works. We can't see him. There aren't footprints and fingerprints and all of that. But we know that he tempts and accuses. Even in our own, in our own lives, uh, John White who's a Christian psycho- uh, psychiatrist, died, I don't know, 10 or so years ago. Born in England, Canadian, working. I know you want to know all that. He wrote a book called The Fight. And in it, he gave this illustration about the workings of Satan, and I've always found it to be helpful. But again, remember, illustrations are always fallible. This doesn't come from the Bible. This is just the way that one man thought it through. And I, I, I think it's... Uh, I think it's helpful. He, he writes this. He says, have you ever fooled around with a piano? So I took piano lessons as a kid for five years. That's how my mother would describe my lessons. I just fooled around. He says, open the top, press the loud pedal, then sing a note into the piano as loudly as you can. Stop and listen. You will hear at least one chord vibrating in response to the note you sang. You sing... 
and a, str- and a string in the piano picks up your voice and plays it back. Now, I've never done that, but I talked to a pianist yesterday and she said that's true. That you, you sing into it and it hears the note, it vibrates the string and it plays back to you. So he goes on and says this. Here is a picture of temptation. Satan calls and you vibrate. The vibration is the sinful nature, the lust within us. Your desire is to go on responding to his call. If pianos have feeling, I imagine they're resounding when the chord vibrates. There's nothing bad about vibrating. The chord was meant to vibrate and to vibrate powerfully. But it was meant to vibrate in response to a hammer, not in response to a voice. The appropriate response then is not to vibrate rapturously to the voice of the devil, but to release the loud pedal and close the top of the piano. In other words, we're not to to, to resonate, we're not to vibrate, if you will, respond to that voice. Like Jesus said, no, I I hear the scripture that you're saying, but, 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 but no, I don't listen to you. I don't listen to you. I don't have a string in me that responds. Our problem is we got strings. Right? We got strings. So when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he says this. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Which means there are times when we have an anger string and it's vibrating for good reason. But he says, be careful with that. Don't let the sun Go down on your anger. In other words, don't hold it too long. Why? Because if you do, you'll give the devil a foothold. Because you see, as that string keeps vibrating, the evil one sings. And that anger string picks it up. And when that anger string picks it up, then it's, I have every right to be angry. Look what you did to me. And before long, we're into revenge and vengeance, hatred, bitterness, all of that. So he says, no, 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 resist that voice. Resist it, you see, because we have strings. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he writes to them, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he writes to them and he says, there's a brother who's grievously sinned, he's repented, forgive him. Because you see, if you don't forgive him, then we're playing into the hands of Satan. It's a paraphrase of 2 Corinthians 2.11. Why is that? Because you see, when we hold on to unforgiveness, most especially in the case where a brother has sinned and repented, we hold on to unforgiveness like that. What happens is, is we become bitter. We become angry. We hold it against him. And, and you see, our own assurance of forgiveness is related to our forgiving, right? Forgive us our debts. We prayed it earlier, as we forgive our debtors. And so you see, once that happens, our assurance gets destroyed. Because when we're not forgiving, we wonder if anyone forgives, if God really does forgive. And so, so you see, that's playing right in. And, and you know, the evil one, the longer we hold that unforgiveness, he sings into our strings. And, and that string begins to vibrate with hatred and bitterness and all of that, you see. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, uh, don't make a young believer a leader in the church, an elder in the church. Because you see, he might be puffed up with conceit and come under the snare of the devil. Because you see, we all have within us a pride, conceit, string, don't we? Oh, we try to put it down, and, and yet then the evil one, if something happens, you know, you get a great compliment, you get a great award, you get whatever it is, you know, and, and, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, you're enjoying that in a good way. You should enjoy that. People bless you, you should enjoy that. But you know, if it goes to your head, as they say, <clears throat> the evil one sings into you how great you are. And you go, oh, yes. And before you know it, you're puffed up. Conceited, arrogant, and all of that. And so I think that's a, a helpful way, at least for me, to think about how the evil one that we can't see, we can't hear, but the evil one works in our lives and the lives of others and even through the lives and circumstances around us. And so you see, <clears throat> when, when, the, when the evil one comes, he comes as a tempter and an accuser. 
And when he comes as a tempter, what he does for us is, uh, to us is the same thing he did with, with, with Adam and Eve and tried to do with Jesus. And that is he tries to cause us to trust in ourselves and not to trust in God, to listen to his voice and not the voice of God. And that's a great danger, obviously. And then when he comes to accuse, he comes to accuse uh, getting us to look more at our sin than the Savior. He's saying, how can you be a Christian? How can you be forgiven? That sin could never be forgiven, you see. And so he comes to accuse us. And, and we have strings on both sides of that. We have this string that says, oh, yeah, I, I want to be like God. And we have this string that says, oh, I'm so bad. There could never be a Savior to save me. I have time for this. I have time for this tonight. Um, <clears throat> thank you. Uh, Thomas Brooks, uh, in the 17th century, 1652, wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. You should buy this book. It's not an easy read, especially in the old language, and I don't think it's been updated, but it's really worth it. And uh, he, says, he says, here's how the tempter tempts. He says, first, by presenting the bait and hiding the hook. He says, be wise to this one. He, 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 he presents the bait, hides the hook. That's what he did with Eve, didn't he? You could be like God, your eyes would be open up. All of these wonderful things will happen. And then we know, we think about the short-term pleasure, and we don't think about the long-term consequence. You know that. can't tell you how many... Marriages have been destroyed because of short-term pleasures and amiss the long-term consequence. This will relieve your pain. This will help you. This will make you happy. So we know that, and that's how he works, you see. There's a string in us that says, I want to be happy. And happiness isn't a bad thing. But happiness without holiness is hell. And so when that string gets the evil one speaks into that, oh, here's how you could be really happy. Look, think about this. Think about that. Think about this. And before you know it, he says, by painting sin with virtues, colors, by, by saying this really isn't a sin, it's really virtuous. This isn't gossip. This is a prayer request. Right? <laughs> anyway, you know that? I can't wait to tell you. How can I tell you this? Oh, let's pray about it. Eh? It's not because I'm not nosy. I'm just concerned, you see. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just sociable. So you see, all of these things, it's, it's, we, we look at the bright side, the good side. Oh, yes. And we make it a virtue. He says, by the extenuating and lessening of, of sin. In other words, that sin really isn't that bad. I mean, come on. Other, everybody does it. You know, our friend Jerry Bridges wrote this book with the convicting title, Respectable Sins. It's convicting because we, we know what he means. We know there's certain sins that are okay. I mean, they're, you know, really, they're not that bad. Everybody does them. Let's not get all hot and bothered about this. By showing to the soul the best men's sins and by hiding from their soul their virtues, their sorrows, and their repentance. In other words, what he does is, is magnify. You know, when a Christian leader falls, when a Christian leader sins... It's, it's all over the papers, and people look at that, and it's as if there's now a license to sin yourself. Well, goodness gracious, look, he did it. He was a pastor. Look, he did it. He was a bishop. Look, he did, he did these things. So, so that, that opens the door, you see, for and the evil one plucks that string, you see. And we go, oh, yes. By presenting God to the soul as one made up of all mercy. In other words, he says, you know, don't worry about what you do. God will forgive you. That's his job. He forgives. And there's truth about that. God is more merciful than we can ever imagine. And he is forgiving. But, but that sense of it, that I'm just going to sin because he's just going to forgive me, misses the whole point. What it means to be devoted and to love. God through Jesus. And by representing to the soul that the outward mercies enjoyed by men walking in sin and their freedom from outward miseries. In other words, he shows us Unbelievers and people unfaithful to God and their lives are great. You know? Their lives are great. Big houses, nice cars, great families, healthy, good jobs, everything. You know, you go, wow. 
Look at me. None of that's true for me, you know? And I'm a follower of Christ. I guess it's not worth it. I guess it doesn't matter how I live. And you know, you have a string like that. I have a string like that. Well, on the accusations, he, he says that the evil one comes to accuse us as well. And again, he says, by causing saints to remember their sins more than their Savior. Yes, even to forget and neglect their Savior. In other words, he can cause us to focus our attention so much on our sin that we never see Jesus. That's destructive, isn't it? That's discouraging, isn't it? I'm so bad. I'm so wrong. Nobody can ever, Jesus, you can never, I could never be forgiven for this. I've, I've sinned like this. It can never be undone. I, I'm just lost, you see. You know, as parents, <clears throat> most parenting books, I don't know what the ratio is. It probably depends by author. But there's something like this, that for every time you, you know, critique or criticize your kids, you need to affirm them five times. You know, because we, we have those strings that, that when we're disaffirmed or crit- criticized or disciplined, that's all we can feel. That's all we can remember. And the evil one speaks into that and says, oh, you're worse than that. So somewhere they need to be affirmed in the midst of that. I, I think for every sin, we need to look at Jesus 10 times. Right? If, if, if your eyes are cut off from Jesus, it wasn't Jesus that cut off your eyes. From him, it was the evil one. Be wise to it. Don't wallow in it. Don't be proud of it, but don't wallow in it. Confess it. Look to Jesus, the very one who is your Savior. He says he causes us to make false definitions of of various graces, like faith, for instance. We think, oh boy, I must not have faith. Because look at that person over there. They have great faith. I can see their faith. I can see it at work. And my faith isn't like that, so I must not really be a believer. And Jesus said, mustard seed people, just a little, you know. It's not about your faith, it's about my greatness. Trust me. So don't do that. Don't say, well, I'm not perfect there. No, 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 no. If you were perfect, I wouldn't have come. And so don't allow that. So the question is then, how do we resist him? Give me five. How do we resist him? And uh, uh, two ways. One, just very practically be smart learn how he comes against you what are your strings well we were singing over there i had three different strings plucked uh, that 10 years ago would have destroyed my ability to preach i won't tell you what they are but they didn't Because I said, I'm not going to think that thought. I know where that's coming from. That isn't the Lord. He wouldn't say that. But then he says, resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Now, on the one hand, that's a very subjective statement. Your faith. That means you, I, we have to own it ourselves. You can't stand firm in my faith. Oh, you know, a friend may be able to carry you for a while when things are difficult. But he says, if you want to resist the evil one, day in and day out, it's got to be your, you've got to have faith. You've got to believe. You've got to know it. Trust it. Your faith. But your faith isn't your faith like you made it up. It's faith in Jesus. From the very word of God. You know, when Paul says put on the armor of God, he's basically saying, get the word of God in you. Put on the belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. Where does our righteousness come from? It comes from Jesus. It's not our righteousness. It's his righteousness. How would I know that? Because I read about it. In the Bible. You got to know that. Put on the helmet of salvation. Know the gospel. Put on the gospel of peace around your feet. Know, believe the gospel. That being your foundation, you see. That's how you come against the evil one. Because that's how you stand firm in your faith. By being firm there. By knowing that. By believing. By believing that. And take up the sword of the spirit. Which is the word of God. And I think. If I could do some punctuation. I don't like the comma. After take up the sword of the spirit. Comma. Praying. I think you take up the sword of the Spirit praying. Don't stop there. Take up the Word of God. Pray it through as you read it through, as you think it through. Pray it in the context of your own life, you see. It says, know the Word of God. Know the Gospel. 
of Jesus. So the question is, how do I apply the gospel to temptation and accusation like this, I think? When you think about the gospel, it goes like this. You know this. But let me quickly, two sentences, rehearse it for you. Jesus died on the cross for my, for our sins, for the sins of sinners. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He came as our representative to live a perfect life for us. Everywhere we've been disobedient, he was obedient. And then he gives that righteousness to us. And then he took the penalty for our sin so that we can be reconciled to God. That gospel tells me two things about me. More than that, but at least these two things which help temptation and accusation. Number one, when I think about the gospel, when I trust the gospel, it reminds me that I'm a sinner. If I weren't a sinner, Jesus would not have had to come. He didn't come to be a good example for me. I have plenty of those, and and I fail all the time. He came to do what I couldn't do. He came to live the life I couldn't live. He came to take the sin that if I took, I'd be damned for all eternity. And so he came to do what I couldn't do. And he came to do that because I'm a sinner. And so you see, when the tempter comes and says, this sin isn't so bad, I say, applying the gospel, what do you mean? This sin killed Jesus. This sin is so heinous, even the littlest ones among them, that this sin is the very reason that Christ had to come and die for me. And so when I'm thinking through the gospel, it's way harder to be tricked by the evil one when when he comes to bait and switch, or when he comes to say this sin isn't that bad, or when he comes to say repentance isn't that hard, you can do this for a while. And I said, no, you don't understand sin if you're saying that. I get sin because I understand the gospel. It tells me I'm a sinner. It tells me it took the life of Jesus to deal with this. That's how bad it is. And then the accusation. When the accusations come, I go to the gospel. And I said, not only am I a sinner, but it tells me I'm deeply loved by God. Because he didn't cause me to die for my sins. It caused his son, beloved son. What love is that? I take this one dearly loved, most loved, most deserving of love. Jesus said, place my sin upon him. How much love the father must have for me. This is love, not that we love God, but he loved us. And gave his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin, you see. And so I think about that and I go, whoa, I'm really loved. So let me, let me let Thomas Brooks, my dead 17th century friend, have the last word here. He says, this is what he would say to his people. He said, the remedy against this guilt, discouragement over personal sin is to look upon all your sins as charged upon the account of Christ. All your sins was, were, were made to, to meet upon Jesus, that is, to be found in him. As that evangelical prophet put it, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Said the wife to the bill collector, if I owe you anything, go to my husband. So may a believer say to justice or to Satan, if I owe you anything, Go to my Christ. Who has underwritten me fully. I must not sit down discouraged under the fear of those debts which Christ to the uttermost farthing has fully satisfied. The remedy against this is to solemnly consider that believers must repent for their being discouraged by their sins. It springs from our refusal, from the refusal of the richness, freeness, fullness, and everlastingness of God's love. And from the refusal of the power, glory, sufficiency, and efficacy of the death and suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from the refusal of the worth, glory, fullness, largeness, and completeness of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God did not give a believer a new heart for it to be rent and torn in pieces by discouragement. He said, it is finished. It is. Okay, I lied. Let me, let me let John the Apostle have the last word. In Revelation chapter 12, he says, they overcame him, that is the dragon, the evil one. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb 
and the word of their testimony. That's how we overcome. We stand firm in the blood of Jesus, the gospel, and our faith therein. Say, I believe that. Okay. Let me let Peter have the last word. So, so, so Peter says, be watchful and sober-minded. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us, that you would enable us to do just that. Grant to us the grace to believe. Grant to us the grace to not listen to the evil one and only listen to you. I pray that as temptations come that would cause us to think we can do it, and we don't need to rely upon the wisdom and the strength of God, that, 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 that we would see that temptation for what it is. Seeing the gospel, we know that we're sinners and we need your wisdom, your strength, your power, your forgiveness, your presence in our lives enable us to live that out. And when the accuser comes, we pray that you would give us a picture of the cross. We would know that our Savior died. And when he did, he did it. And it's finished. And we can rest in that. Father, we pray pray for all of us who are struggling on these days as those people in the days of Peter were struggling and I pray that though vulnerable I pray again that even in the midst of this deep vulnerability whether it's a, a relational trial or whether it's a physical trial or whether it's an economic trial or whatever the trials that may come our ways that, that we wouldn't listen to the evil one that he wouldn't be the voice in our, in our ears that would, that would cause us to disregard the truth of God that Rather, we would listen to you even in the pain of it, even in the difficulty of it, even in the challenge of it, even, even in the trial of it. We're grateful, God, for you. And all that you've done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ, enable us to stand firm in every way. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. <clears throat>